everyone and welcome to the Changemakers podcast. I'm Catalina and I'm curious about change. In this podcast, I am interviewing people around the world who are researching and driving some sort of change, either in their own lives, in their communities, in their industries or societies. In today's episode, I had the honor to interview Yancy Strickler, the co-founder of Kickstarter and author of This Could Be Our Future. Yancy is currently on a mission to end financial maximization as the dominant force and as the dominant value that guides our decisions and actions by 2050. In this interview, we discuss about the expansion of our current set of values so that we start making decisions for long-term sustainability, for reasons of community needs, for reasons of fairness. Yancy strongly believes that we have the ability to affect the largest possible things, that the deepest possible assumptions of society are changeable by us. So tune in this episode for insights on Yancy's upcoming book, for a reflection on values, progress, entrepreneurship, and future of work. To kickstart this discussion, I would like to ask you to tell uh, our listeners a little bit about your upcoming book. Uh, so on 29th of October, your book, This Could Be Our Future, is going to be released. Uh, and in this work, you are reflecting on building a different society, one that looks beyond money and toward maximizing the values that make life worth living. Uh, so I was wondering, what are actually these values that are making life worth living? Um, hmm. So can you give us a little introduction? <laughs> sure. Um, well, Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Um, you know, I, I'm here because you sent a, a, a nice, simple email asking me to come. And, you know, when people ask nice, you know, ask nice, simple questions, it's, it's easy to say yes to. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I have a, uh, I've written a book that will come out later this year. It's the first, first time I've done this. And it's, a uh, it's an economic manifesto um, that explores how the belief in financial maximization, which is the idea that the rational correct choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. The book is about how that idea came to rule the world. And that has not always been the dominant idea of the globe. It's really just been for about the past 50 years or so. Um, and so I track the history of that idea and talk about how that could and should be different. And, you know, part of what I think happened is that for most of human history, society has been guided by values, moral values and ideas of right and wrong, um, social expectations, you know, things that are kind of human fictions, but that are critical for allowing us to cooperate. Um, and then in the last 50 years, the moral values became surpassed by financial value. And that happened because, um, because it was, uh, you could measure financial value. It's a lot easier to measure money than it is to measure justice or fairness or community or any of those other things. And so the, the measured surpassed the not measured. And now we're in a world where we are Every company, government, individuals, we're all optimizing for our financial take, for how much we can, we can have for ourselves. But at the same time, we're missing a lot of the values we should be considering when making decisions, uh, but aren't. And those sorts of values that I think are lost now are fairness, 
the idea of making decisions that will work out for the average person, not the person making the decision. Um, that's a real change in how things work. I think that community connection is a thing that we have thought was not very valuable or, or haven't paid as much attention to. We thought that could would just always exist, whether we did anything about it or not. But I think that must be included more in our thinking. And then uh, probably the most pressing um, of these would be the sustainability of our practices, using energy and resources and Yes, uh, drilling for more natural gas in the tar sands of Canada will lower gas prices for the next four years and thus increase profitability in all these other industries. But where, what does that mean in 20 years? And how, how can we think about that? And so the book argues that, all, like, that making decisions for reasons of long-term sustainability, making decisions for reasons of community needs, making decisions for reasons of fairness, now those are treated as kind of emotional arguments. If you're arguing that like, hey, it's about the future of the planet, it, it feels like you are making an emotional argument against a rational argument of, yes, but we need oil and there are this many people and et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I think the goal should be for these values, for these non-financial values to become rational, to become defined, to become, sometimes that may mean measuring, but I think it means, in other cases, it just means that through philosophy, through uh, law, through social discussion, um, through the growth of knowledge, that these decisions that now seem irrational and emotional and unimportant, that we come to realize that those are just as important values to base our choices on as money, as stock prices, anything else. And so, you know, the world is dominated now by... Um, maximizing financial value, but that's financial value is just simply the first value we have defined in this way. It's not the last. Like the idea that we're never going to define another universal global value to use to understand our decisions or to, you know, produce outcomes and effects just seems absurd to me that we would just stop here. Um, so a lot of the book is, or sort of a, it's bookended, it starts and ends with a, a conversation addressing millennials and Generation Z and younger and saying that um, those generations will be in power in 2050. That's the year they will be really in power for the first time. And, um, and I think they should have a plan for where we should go. My generation, I'm, I'm 40 years old, so I'm Generation X. And um, we didn't have a plan. You know, we thought that the institutions of the world would keep working. We thought that, you know, all that stuff was under control and we could just try to go be stars and entrepreneurs and do whatever, you know, do whatever our things were and everything would keep working. And it hasn't worked out that way. My, my generation didn't do enough to support institutions, to reinforce the structures that have made the modern world what it is, the good parts of it. Um, and we did that happen because we just thought we could go with the flow and everything would work out and it, and it hasn't. And so I think for the generation that will be coming into power in 30 years from now, a generation from now, if they have a, if they have a plan, if they have a concept of where we should be shifting towards uh, like that, that can absolutely happen like that. That is a power that rests in that generation. And so if, if we wanted to, steer our sense of values, steer our sense of what's important in society. That is absolutely possible. It takes time. It takes time. My, my book argues that it takes 30 years for large scale social changes to happen. 
30 years for like a new idea to become mainstream. And for activists leading that, that long period of change can be frustrating, can be demoralizing, can feel like failure. It's easy to lose passion. It's easy to lose energy. But the sorts of social changes that we're talking about are, are relays. They're not marathons. They are handed off from one person to the next. Um, and so the, the book is just arguing that we have the ability to affect the largest possible things. The deepest possible assumptions of society are changeable by us with A, a plan, a reasonable plan, and B, the proper expectations of how long it's going to take. And if we have those things in mind, like it's, you know, there, there's nothing that is out of our control. Um, but we struggle with, A, having an idea where to go other than just like, you know, less like it is now or something. But we need a positive view of what to work towards and one that we can imagine benefiting everyone, not just us, not just whatever your side is. And then the second thing is you have to have a reasonable expectation about what it's going to take. You know, you could have a great plan and be like, and we'll all get elected to office and we'll just make it all happen in two years. You know, you're going to be bummed out because that's, that's not going to work. Um, so I think it requires a different way of thinking about change. Um, so, you know, so the book, the book I'm hoping will, you know, uh, be, a, be a building block that others are adding on to, you know, and um, yeah, and, and so yeah, it, com it comes out October 29th. This could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Awesome, thank you for this amazing introduction. Uh, so you're, uh, you're mentioning this non-financial values, you know, that we have to sort of turn towards more and more um, for, for our future. Um, would we add these values as kind of additional dimensions to, to this financial maximization or shall we replace that financial maximization altogether? I, th I think it's additional because there are, there are many places where uh, uh, making a financially maximizing choice is rational. You know, should I, should I spend my money this way or that way? You know, there, there's just like, that is, of course, of course that makes perfect sense, but um, it's just not, always the right value and so um i think you get into a world where um you know like in medicine you know a, a doctors are supposed to make choices according to the health of the patient the hippocratic oath the you know the various sort of expectations and morals and best practices they're not making a choice according to what is the most financially advantageous outcome for me now in, in america they actually do do that but you know, that would be an inappropriate way to make that decision. You know, same with like how a school should be run. Like we understand that there are limits to how these things should work. Um, but we struggle to implement those things. And the default, especially in my country, the United States, the default is to look towards uh, just what will make the most money. But there are, there are interesting examples of people that are thinking beyond this. Um, one of my favorites is Adele, the, the pop singer Adele, uh, who in 2014 was going on tour. I think it was her album 25 was coming out and it was her first tour in several years. And Adele has a problem that um, her tickets immediately sell out and they get scalped for hundreds and thousands of dollars more than what you're supposed to pay. And she always charges her tickets at like 50 bucks a pop, you know, to try to keep it fair. Uh, and then fans have to pay a lot of money. So that what sucks for Adele is that when she performs in those situations, she's either playing for rich fans or 
fans who aren't wealthy, but are probably spending more money than they should to be there. They're probably making a real sacrifice. And like, she's the sort of person that that bothers her. Um, and so she found a startup in the UK that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal uh, someone was as a fan to an artist. They would analyze social data, whatever things they could gather, and they identified here are the, whatever, the top 50,000 Adele fans in each city. And we will invite them to buy tickets. We won't restrict whether they can resell them. They get to pay the cheap face value. But we believe that if we use an algorithm to optimize for the loyalty of the crowd, then we can produce a communal experience where people aren't paying too much money and that she's able to make this choice and execute it in a way that is rational, that is repeatable, that is unemotional. And she is maximizing for who is in the room with her and not for how much money she's getting from them. And, you know, before, before very recently, a choice like that would be impossible. And, um, and it's, a, it's, a it's a strange thing to think about. I mean, it's a strange thing to think about to imagine algorithms sorting what should be made available to us or things like that. And uh, there's all sorts of bad things about that I, that I can imagine. But I think that the ability to make choices based on different values, metrics, and reasons uh, is something that we're going to be able to do a lot more of. And whenever you have a monopoly power like financial value is over all other values it's sort of like the monopolist of value uh, once you start to weaken their power just a little bit it's it's it can start a momentum going the other way so my my ideal would be you know 70 years from now financial value is still the dominant form of value but there's like five other things that are almost as common that people can very easily talk about and understand and that give you a, you know, a, a deeper dimensionality of your world, you know, and that's maybe not, it's, it's maybe not everybody's job in society to know what these things are, but certainly for the people who are in charge of making sure we don't run out of resources or food or whatever, like there's, there are smarter, deeper things they're looking at rather than how much money are we making. Mm -hmm. uh, could you see this future that you're describing also in this book and you know as part of your manifesto is it a global future is it applied to you know the global society because i feel sometimes we're quite in a privileged position you know to kind of be very critical and point out what should change and what should not and maybe through these decisions we are you know creating some consequences for for bigger societal how to say like bigger bigger populations that we're, we're we're thinking about so do you see this applied globally how, how would that work i mean i think it can be a philosophy that is um picked up on globally that is applied in its own local ways but kind of you know but kind of this whole idea is based on an assumption that like there are maybe there are there are there are a, a set of global values but it's not it's not infinite. Like this is, this is more strongly believing in local values that like what, how a, how a German or how a, or how a Nigerian or how an Australian or how a whatever, all kinds of different people will, will read their situations very differently and rationally. So that there aren't these single rational answers there. There are where it's like, I'm hungry and I need food or, you know, my family is in danger and needs safety. Um, so I think what I'm talking about as this expansion of value I think it's most um, it's most relevant in the first world. Um, I think it 
I think there may be an argument that um, growing the financial base of a society is the rational choice within some boundaries up until a certain moment, at which point we're going to find that you have to keep transitioning in the same way you can't be in an agricultural economy forever and you, know, you have to make these sort of shifts. I think that's what happens. I mean, it's, it's very notable to me that the United States, the UK, France, uh, you know, three of the five wealthiest nations in the world have all experienced uh, populism, uprisings by, by people, uh, problems with mass inequality. And these are the richest nations in the world where workers have very little job security. Workers in the United States haven't had a, a substantive raise since 1973. And again, this is the most profitable period in human history. And we cannot find enough to provide for the 44% of Americans who can't pay their bills every month. For all of the, uh, the yellow vest protesters when that was going on who you know, felt left out of a growing economy. So like these, the richest societies are experiencing these new kind of problems. And this is, these are the problems of too much financial maximization. These are the problems of elites getting addicted to money and thinking that that's the only thing that mattered and losing sight of the fact that when you only focus on growing a financial base, you bleed dry other resources. And if instead the goal of society is something like grow a healthy middle class, then all your choices have, they have additional positive effects rather than additional negative effects that you have to balance in other ways. Like it's just, it's dumb. It's dumb. And, and, it's been four or five decades of it happening and people have gotten very rich and feel very good about themselves and, you know, and, and we're kind of stuck and we're kind of stuck. And so to me, it's like, this is the, you know, the people talk about late stage capitalism. I guess that's what I'm talking about by this, but we, three of the five richest societies in the world have reached this stage and have started to really su suffer and fall apart as a result of these same policies. So, you know, either the answer is that's as far as a society can go without another collapse state or something, um, or it's that there becomes a transition point. There becomes a transition point where you have to switch strategies, or just that the goal of growing financial, uh, a financial growth only works in some circumstances, but once that overtakes a whole society, you, you're ultimately in like a, a, death, a death spiral of like profits without prosperity for human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you apply, and then if you add in uh, automation uh, and you add in the dominant business strategies uh, in the West of using corporate profits to use stock buybacks and to give that money back to investors rather than reinvesting it into, com into companies, there becomes a future where um, the largest companies in the world will have tiny employee bases and huge amounts of robots and no money will be, you know, it's just all going to stay within uh, these organizations. Like society will be starved by the power of, of these companies and the structures and just the, the way of thinking, the philosophy that is driving them now. So the, the technology is going to come no matter what. So what is changeable? What is changeable are the values that guide how that technology is used that determine what we think is our successful outcomes. You know, that it's, 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 it's in the space of values, which are hard to change, which take a lot of time to change, but it's in the change, it's space of values that you can redirect how technology operates, redirect 
what our goals are, what we think is a good or bad outcome, uh, all of that. So, you know, I, I think it's getting to that, that deeper spot and yeah. And, and, and the West, the West, especially the, the very wealthy West has, uh, yeah, is running into a wall of its own making. Mm-hmm. I, I really like, I've read in, in one of the books, I think it was Donut Economics, uh, where the author mentioned that, you know, money was never created for the purpose of making more money. It was just as a way of exchanging different goods or services and we've created this whole financial maximization value as you call it as you know as the holy grail of how our society functions um and you know you mentioned at the beginning that um the the um the reason why we're having this financial maximization as one of our core values is because you know it was just kind of the simplest one because you can measure it um so i want to pick your brain a little bit on further on this idea because it feels like this need to measure stuff comes from the idea of growth and progress. So um, we're kind of in terms of technology, but you know, business as well, this growth and progress is kind of the gold or like the guideline that um, guides everything that we do. Um, so do you think progress and growth is something we actually made up and is it worth pursuing progress for the sake of progress, considering, you know, the different maybe disastrous consequences that we are creating with that on our planet. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a, a staunch believer in progress. I mean, if we didn't, we would be in caves still and, you know, you would have no listeners to your podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, I think we need those things. I do. I think that there is a basic human drive that feels a dissatisfaction with the same thing over and over. And we, you know, we all, we have different versions of those things in each of us, but I think those are like, that's our superpower. Like those are, and that's this, you know, it's a superpower that can have all sorts of negative consequences, but yeah, no, I, I think we have to, because it's not like, you know, it's not like we can, I mean, maybe you could, but it's like, not like we could stop now and just accept all the problems that we currently have and just be like, this is it. You know, I kind of feel like that's what people in power want to do. They want to freeze the world into place because they're on top and things are working according to their design. Um, So I think, I think progress is a must. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because, you know, there's, um, ego, ego and progress are like a, are a dangerous combination where, um, you know, we want to prove ourselves by what we achieve and do and whether or not what we're achieving and doing actually benefits anyone other than ourselves becomes less important. You know, there's, there's things like that, that, uh, become dangerous, but yeah, I, I think progress is important. I, I also think growth is important, but I think that, I think that we're going to have different forms of growth, that growth in terms of just, uh, qual of quantitative of like a number going up that might become less important than qualitative forms of growth things getting better and it might it might be that like uh fewer resources used becomes a new type of growth that becomes important um you know i I think that i think that what what is growing should change but um but yeah the drive like the it's, it's a great motivator, you know, it's a great motivator. And, and like we, you know, a a world where we're all just, I don't know, just supposed to hang on to what's here. And yeah, that's a, that's a dissatisfying one. 
you know, maybe my ego is talking saying that, but yeah, but I, I, I think there's so much more room to go. And, and the thing that our ancestors believed was that every destination is temporary. You know, you're not like, we're just, you're all, we're keep moving, you know, we're a species, like look at what all the other species on earth do, you know? So, um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a believer. I'm a believer and I, and I'm an optimist about the future. You know, I think that we are, uh, we are always doing the best we can with what we know, but we never know the things that we don't know. And it's about what is the, what is the new knowledge that we can unlock? What are the new ways of seeing that let us make sense of the parts of the world that don't make sense the way we are now? And human history is about constantly having those sorts of breakthroughs and then, you know, just sort of like uh, history following them. So right now, I, you know, uh, right now we're still, we're still following a course of history set out in the late 18th century of the French revolution and the declaration of independence and, uh, you know, Smith and Marx and like kind of the, the entire text of our world was constructed in the span of about 30 years and, you know, or 50 years from the end of the 18th century, the middle of the 19th century. And we're still kind of building on that playbook. And, um, yeah. So how does that evolve? How does that evolve based on what we've learned since then? And there, you know, there've been many brilliant writers and thinkers trying to work through those things over the years. And, um, you know, and so I'm just another one trying to build on their ideas. And again, just trying to, what is, what is the infrastructure? What is the architecture? What are the philosophies that should, that should guide the future? Um, and, you know, and the, and the one thing that I think we might, the, the challenging thing that we might get wrong and that as attention I feel in my own ideas is that, um, you know, in the past, I don't think there was this belief that uh, every institution or every family or every business should, should like that everyone should exactly see themselves in those places that like there is a perfect, there's a perfect slot for me somewhere. And like, I meant to find that. And instead, and instead we would, you know, people would be a part of institutions or parts of teams or parts of groups based on the things they had in common. And those might be like uncommon things they had in common, which made their relationship even better. You know, like we all have triplets, you know, what, what a unique experience we have, but like, but building relationships on based on what's in what's what we have in common, building institutions based on shared values rather than arguing over the values that aren't shared um, is a, you know, it's a bit of a trap. It's a bit of a trap. And it's hard because there are sometimes these values, sometimes these, these systems are truly unjust. And so that it must be something that is rectified, but um, we will never reach a point of everyone being, you know, everyone being represented in exactly this ways that they would like. And in every form, you know, I think that is, um, there's some maximum we're going to get to. Um, and yeah, and there, we just, there's a, we gain a lot from coming together and we, um, yeah. And it's, it's something that in our current mindset and in an age of like hyper individualism, we find very hard to do, but yeah, like looking for the perfect thing is, um, I think it kind of holds us back in some ways. Mm -hmm. mm, what's, what do you think is the future of work? I mean, it, it sounds very general and, and very vague, but you mentioned also before that, you know, we have this trend of automation and we might find ourselves at some point where we have these big corporations that uh, employ uh, robots. Um, so yeah. what are these people actually going to do? 
Um, what is your thoughts on that? Well, um, I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think a universal basic income, I mean, I get how that makes sense. Um, but I like, I believe very strongly in work and, 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 and it's very satisfying. It's like a, you're, you could be a servant to something larger. That's, it's like a great way to make friends, to be with others. It's a way to create meaning. Um, you know, the times where I've worked the hardest have been like the best times of my life. I believe in, you know, all of that has like, I'm, I'm such a strong believer. Um, but I also think it's true that there are a lot of bullshit jobs in the world now. And, and, and I've had them, <laughs> I've had them in my life for sure. And, you know, so people talk about like, what is this the end of work or something, the end of jobs. And I, I think it's, I think the kind of work that we should be doing uh, is not happening and maybe it will, is what will begin, which is sort of like a, more like a direct value creation. Like what is it, what would it mean to be more helpful towards one another? Is that, is there, you know, is a social worker a different kind of job than we can imagine today? Um, is like being a teacher and being a student are those things that should be lifelong things in certain aspects of our life? Like what, what, I, you know, I, in the same way that like if I walk around New York City, um, there are vacant storefronts everywhere. Like in Soho and in, in Fifth Avenue, it's like 30 to 40% of stores have nothing there because rents are too high. The internet has made physical retail very difficult and there are too many chains. And so I look at these spaces and I think there's no way New York can have just empty storefronts everywhere. So 40 years from now, these spaces are going to be filled with something that I have a hard time conceptualizing. But like, it will, it will evolve. It will happen. It will happen because people get fed up of having their neighborhoods be empty. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll happen because someone has an idea and then that changes over, over a long period of time. That doesn't mean those changes are inevitable. Um, yeah, so um, I, forget, I forget where, I, where, where we started with that. Um, uh, but yeah, the future of work automation. The future <laughs> yeah, of work. I think. It, I mean, I think it's. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I, I hope. I. I mean, I'm currently like a solo hustler, where I'm like, you know, written a book, and I'm stepping out into that, and I've really loved that. Um, but, you know, I miss having coworkers and colleagues, and I, I think that's incredibly important. So I, I hope it's not that we're all just doing the future equivalent of driving Ubers and like doing bad Fiverr gigs or something, you know, I mean, I hope it's, I think it needs to be collaborative. And I, I think it's, I think it's instead of working for the growth of financial value, it's working for the growth of other values. You know, maybe, maybe we should all be planting trees. Maybe we should all be planting a hundred trees a day, you know, and like, and that's the, that is literally the most value positive thing we could do. That might, that might literally be the truth, you know? And so what right now that doesn't happen because it doesn't, maximize anyone's financial gain and again we it's any decision that does not maximize financial gain we currently see as irrational we currently see it as irrational it's unthinkable it's unthinkable and in the and I, I believe in the near future that that will change awesome and, that's, believe, that's... and I this belief we have now is going to seem absurd it's going to seem absurd <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really nice to have optimists like you <laughs> uh, who are very positive about the future. I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical, but it's, it's really inspiring to, to listen to, to your view. Um, 
to change a little bit the topic, uh, looking back, Kickstarter has been founded over 10 years ago. Uh, and I really like that you mentioned in, in one of your interviews that, uh, you know, when you started Kickstarter, the desire was never to build a company. Um, so if you think back when you started uh, and looking at how it kind of evolved over the last decade, uh, would you say that you managed to fulfill your initial vision if there was, you know, an initial very determined vision? And where do you think Kickstarter, but also maybe the crowdfunding as a concept uh, will evolve in the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are, uh, it was Perry Chen who first had the idea for Kickstarter. So it was first first his vision uh, for that. And then Charles Adler and I were, uh, are the other co-founders. Um, and yeah, the goal, the goal wasn't to start a company. I mean, it was, um, it was Perry had this great idea that we were all so excited by and we were excited about, about it. Um, because I mean, we talked about it as it's a, it's a platform where fans can support new creative projects from their favorite artists. That was the idea. And, you know, and, and the thinking was when David Lynch tries to make a new movie, he's having to take out, you know, oil barons to dinner to try to get them to write him a $200,000 check. Um, and it's like brutal work for him. And also we as fans would totally put up the money for David Lynch to make whatever he wanted. Of course, we just want him to work and be creative. And so it's very similar to the book where in the world before Kickstarter, the only movies or creative projects that would get funded are ones that a label or a studio thought was going to be a hit. You know, they were looking at the financial upside of a potential project and deciding its existence based on that. And so the, the core idea behind Kickstarter was that instead of projects being funded based on their potential financial outcomes, projects should be funded just because people like them. The bar, the bar for existence should be lowered from profitability to just people care. Um, and so that, that was like the, the core driving idea. And, and yeah, and so that made us become entrepreneurs that made us learn how to start a website, start a company, learn how to hire many, many people, you know, all sorts, all sorts of things that, we had to learn um, and grow through along the way. And, you know, it, it was an amazing experience for me. And one that, you know, we, we, I learned these things, not like trying to go through the process of starting a company, but learning these things while just following something that I felt passionate about, that I believed in so deeply. Um, and, um, and yeah, you know, there's a, there's a blog post that I wrote the day the site went live called why Kickstarter that like lays out the vision. And, um, and I reread, I hadn't read it in years and I reread it just a few months ago. And it's like, it's absurd. The things I wrote are absurd. I mean, they seem so like, uh, high, high minded, but like, without question, Kickstarter has surpassed those things. Like even the even the kind of, lame hopeful things I wrote way back when like I think those things have happened and 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 crowdfunding has also just grown to become an amazing force that's not going to go anywhere and it just it's just so useful and it's so necessary and again think about all the money on crowdfunding that is money being used in support of non-financially maximizing reasons it's people using money for irrational purposes according to the mindset of our world today it's all irrational it's all irrational but yet you know, billions of dollars 
changing hands that way. And like the world without question being better by this, by these irrational uh, uses of money. Um, and so that, yeah, that, you know, that, that, that was just an, an amazing journey. And, um, and so I, I, I was CEO of my last four years that I was uh, at Kickstarter and I stepped down from that role almost two years ago. Exactly. Um, and so I was, I was, you know, grinding on Kickstarter for about 12 years and, uh, yeah. And, and, and loved it. And, you know, and, and very, very rarely did it feel like work or a job kind of only towards the end, only towards the end as I was, I was just getting tired, you know, it'd been a long time, um, thinking about the same sets of things. Um, uh, but yeah, but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm helping out several entrepreneurs now and I, I, I love that. And, you know, especially if someone is like we were just feels compelled by an idea, they can't help themselves. Is that am I starting a company? I didn't even notice. I'm just like trying to make this thing. I'm just making this thing because my heart is just on fire for it. And I don't, you know, I just can't stop. And yeah, that's what that was like. Um, for me. And it's, and it's still that way for the people that work there. I mean, it's, it's a place where people believe very deeply. I mean, you, you work at Kickstarter because you care and you know, the company only hires people who believe those things. So that, that energy remains. Um, but I think, you know, for an individual person, there's only so long you can hold that kind of, you know, you can have that kind of energy, I think. Um, and then I, and then, yeah, then once I started writing the book, I like found it again, you know, found it again in a different way, um, which was exciting because, you know, I sort of felt so tired. I didn't know, like, is this, will I ever, <laughs> am I ever going to have a spark to put into something again? Was this it? That's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's also really inspiring, you know, to, to talk, uh, to hear you talk so passionately about the project and it definitely brought a lot of positive things, um, in the whole entrepreneurial world. Uh, I remember like two years ago or so uh, with, with two of my friends, we also, you know, were on a mission to change education and change the world. And we had like this huge big vision and then we started talking with a lot of investors and our motivation just went down because we always, you know, all the money talk and talking about market yeah. shares. And but there, there, <laughs> I mean, there could be bad, you could meet investors that are not, you know, great people in terms of value alignment, but like they're asking good questions. Um, because like, even if, even if you're like, we're going in education because everyone else sucks and we're going to, we're going to make it better. And we're going to, we're going to fix all these things. Well, you are, even if you're right, you are going to be in a prolonged period of having to compete against those other systems. And yes, compete on the space of values as you want to, but you are also going to have to compete where you do a better job providing for the collective self-interest of whatever that community is that you're trying to meet. And because there's already someone there, that means it's that much harder to overcome that. And so, like, I think a lot of these questions are just quite practical of like, listen, even if you are the most, you know, you are, you are the most pure, pure goodness personifies uh still you're going to be competing against the people a lot of people that aren't like that so once you know once the com the competitive space moves away from who is a better person to these other things like how do you compete because you're gonna you're gonna have to 
And you might have your story that in all those situations, like, listen, I'm never going never gonna to be able to do what they do because I'm like this. But that person you're talking to, that thing you're not going to be able to do, that might be the most important thing to them. And they might agree with you on your values, but you're like, listen, but I've, I, my own values say I have to put this first. And so, you know, we're in the world, we're all in the world. You can't, we can't remove ourselves from the world. And um, so I, yeah, some of those concerns I think are, are interesting. It's, it's weird. I mean, I, I'm like, I'm helping out startups now and I'm finding myself sometimes asking the, like the old grizzled capitalist questions, which I don't, which I don't intend to be that way, but I'm just like, Hey, here's, here's what's coming. How are you, how are you prepared for this? How are you thinking about this? Because whether you want that to be a part of your world or not, if you are launching a product, if you're trying to serve people, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Your terms don't matter quite as much as the people that you're trying to help. Um, and so I think those sorts of concerns are, are good. And, and the other thing I would say is, um, you know, the initial idea for Kickstarter was very simple. And then there was a, several years uh, where we were struggling to get the website built because uh, none of us were programmers. And, and so during that time, this very simple idea just like ballooned into this extravagant, complicated empire that we were going to, that we thought we were going to launch. And, uh, uh, you know, we just got so ahead of ourselves and we were, fortunately there was enough time before the site launched that we could realize how bad all these other ideas were. And we could once again, get it down to the simple essence of things. But, you know, there, every, every site product company launches with, 60 things it wants to do. And in reality, when you start, you can do one of them. You know, you could do one, you could do one new thing and it's your job to nail that. And it, and there will be times of it feeling personally unsatisfying. Like we should be doing more, I'm bored of this, whatever, but no, it's about perfecting that one thing and, you know, thoughtfully adding to it or whatever, but it's, um, you know, bloat, bloat in products, bloat in missions, um, bloat in the space you want to be in is like, it's just, it's just death for a project. Cause you just end up in a no man's land where no one cares. No one, no one's, no one cares about your life or death because like, you don't really speak for anybody. So like, yeah, simple focused, like really, really self editing. Like those are, those are traits I strongly associate with success and, and by success, meaning communicating ideas or visions and other people grasping them and engaging with them. Um, and that, that you do by simplicity and by, yeah, by anticipating the needs of the people you're trying to reach more than your own and then having enough skill to do that. Um, cause you know, having the skill to write in the right way or to design a product in the right way, or to think of a brand this, the right way, it takes a lot of experience to, to do that. You just, you know, you just learn, you just learn by doing it. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely, definitely simplicity uh, mm -hmm. goes a really long way. There's a site I just came across this week that I really like. Um, I'd never heard of before. It's brand new called Ren, W-R-E-N. Um, and it allows you to become personally carbon neutral. You answer nine questions in a very nice design of like 
Do you drive a car? How many flights will you take a year? Are you vegetarian? How big's your house? These sorts of things. And then it shows you what your annual carbon footprint is. And the idea is just, it, the site is so simple. It's so, it's so basic. You know, I can imagine the version of this product that is like hugely complicated and trying to do a million different things. But yeah, the simplicity immediately grabbed me and I just thought, okay, this is, I think this, I think this is cool. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would like to ask you one final question to kind of also end on a more inspirational, positive note. Um, so in one of your talks, I think you mentioned that um, when you have a destination, it's amazing how far you can go or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering what is your destination if you have a destination? So what is the impact you would like to, to, cre to create with your work? And, you know, after having such a huge project like Kickstarter, after having written a book, um, what's kind of the next on the horizon? Where is your curiosity leading you? Just gradual decline uh no, no. <laughs> sudden and gradual and then sudden decline um you know my goal i mean my my goal in life i think at this moment um is the end of financial maximization as the dominant force in humanity by 2050 and do i think that's my job in 2050 when i'll be 71 years old you know probably not probably other people will know what the right things are to do at that point but um yeah i i uh, i believe that these ideas will can be a building block and that the this book will be the start of something that i will be a part of and i hope a lot of other people will be a part of and i hope I hope that other people are leading this as well. Um, you know, the, just speaking personally, the process of writing a book, um, I loved, I loved, you know, before Kickstarter, I was a music critic. So I, I'm a, I am a writer at, at my heart and writing the book, I really felt that. I was like very much in line, aligned with myself while doing that. And so I want to continue to do that. So I have... In my head, I, I see four more books quite clearly, um, and I want to start another one fairly soon, but we'll, we'll see what, what the journey of putting this into the world will be like. Um, but yeah, my, my hope is that this, that this book and the things that stem, spin off of it will inspire people like you, people listening to this podcast, to uh, commit themselves to this goal of expanding our definition of value and to shifting how it is we can reliably and rationally make decisions. And I think that's if a lot of smart people just put their brains on it. I have no doubt that's possible. So, you know, I'm hoping to convince people that this is the right path and to, you know, don't take that job in finance. Don't take the job at Facebook, like become a, become a researcher, become a part of this, this new values creating class. Um, and cause that's, that's what our, that's our best future starts there. Our, our worst futures look a lot like what we have right now, just continuing. So the generation that will be leading in 2050, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. They have the power to change that. They just have to be prepared and have a plan. So, uh, you know, I'm the guy trying to talk about that and I, I will be for some time. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jan, so much for such a great interview. I hope you enjoyed it 
as much as I did. <laughs> it was really yeah, nice to listen to your story. Um, yeah, so I wish you the best of luck in, in your upcoming projects. And I'm really looking forward to, to read uh, your book in October and then to read the next four <laughs> coming yeah. in the next. Okay. We order them all now. Yeah, for, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Cool. So thanks a lot. everyone for listening. This is the Changemaker podcast, a series of interviews with people driven to create a positive impact in their communities and the world. If you like this episode, make sure to reach out. Stay positive, follow your dream, and make this world a better place. See you next week.